Hello and welcome to the Poet Prophetic Podcast. Here is the next instalment of the Gourmet Gospel, concluding section 6. Enjoy! Freedom in Feeling Quote Had they ever felt the solid pleasure of one generous spasm of the heart, they would exchange for it all the frigid speculations of their lives. Thomas Jefferson, Dialogue Between Heart and Head In our creation story, Adam and Eve inflict on themselves the knowledge of good and evil. From that wound of polarized knowledge, a binary and polarized world developed, replicated, and imposed itself on humanity, tugging it ever since between extremes in much the same way as a pendulum swings. Feeling worthless, for instance, the wound seeks to prove superiority. Feeling unlovable, it wants to be an object of worship. Out of control, it would control others. Afraid, puts its trust in false promises. Feeling insignificant, shocks and offends to get noticed. Expecting want, hoards. Feeling powerless, seeks power over others. Feeling guilty, aims to be faultless. And feeling polluted, seeks solace in perfection. These are among the artificial beliefs at play among us that would thwart love, communion and realization. But as we revisit Shakespeare's all the world's a stage. We realize our mood swings are a medium of theatrical invention. Now, instead of being puppets to the pendulum swing, we may instead observe it. We may even, from the vantage point of an off-world actor inhabiting an on-world character, observe ourselves reacting according to phantom beliefs, then we may acknowledge that our resultant feelings are informed by limited perception and perhaps distorted by our painful experiences or traumas. Meanwhile, we may raise our on-world selves to a higher point on the pendulum swing where the oscillations are milder so that we are no longer, like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Following on from our earlier look at thought life, we may now regard both thought and feeling as the currency of this world stage, as opposed to the universal, or perhaps beyond universal, currency of the imagination. Thus, as we said of thought, feeling should not be offended either when we confine it to its theatrical box and deny it the right, status or scope to condemn us. Edifying Emotion Scripture describes the heart as the dwelling place of God and faith in God, of love, joy, strength, courage, desire, and life itself. But it is also the source of sorrow, grief, anguish, anger, and despair. So receiving the grace of God calls for a corrective to language, given humanity's tendency to label certain emotions as negative. Rather, as David Siemens declares, we need not be afraid to face the worst, the ugliest, the most painful. You don't have to be afraid to express your feelings of grief, sorrow, 
hurt, loneliness, struggle, even depression. Sometimes you may even experience depressive feelings like Elijah had after his greatest moment of triumph. Oh Lord, it is enough. Let me die. Furthermore, just as we acknowledge truth is refracted into a myriad of colors, see, singular mind, above, we may also allow that different people have different emotional responses to similar events. But few preachers are willing to give the spirit full emotional reign. I have even heard some assail as sin some feelings as if they could be legislated. These assailants of conscience are become agents of an age that tells us not to take things personally and, in the words of sociologist Irving Goffman, bureaucratizes the spirit. That bureaucratization, as playwright Eve Ensler points out, has intensified with the ascendancy of corporate power. Dear America, the corporations consume you. They take your money and your time and your voice and your instincts and your outrage and your sorrow and your anger and your grief. They consume your courage and leave fear in its place. They devour your conscience and your memory and your compassion. George Orwell coined the phrase thought crime in his prophetic novel 1984, but we may also observe in our time a widespread prosecution of feel crime as corporations beat out the rhythm to which all humanity is expected to dance. Sacred Sorrow Quote, Our tongues and sorrows do sound deep our woes into the air. Our eyes do weep till lungs fetch breath that may proclaim them louder, that if heaven slumber while their creatures want, they may awake their helps to comfort them. Shakespeare, The Winter's Tale Tears are the stuff of poetry. To Shakespeare they are orient pearl. To Milton, precious drops from the eyes of Eve. No less are they the stuff of prayer, witnessing that deep calls to deep or, as Tennyson puts it, utterance from the depth of some divine despair. Our tears are treasured in heaven, kept there in a bottle or listed on a scroll, fragrant before the throne of God, calling upon the Almighty to summon his aid. Though the psalmist stilled and quietened his soul, his calls to heaven were not solely the stuff of quiet time, but the outcome of drenching his couch with tears, and Christ himself prayed with loud cries and tears. Sorrow plays a pivotal role in the Christian life. It is at the heart of repentance, a precursor to joy, a catalyst in the search for wisdom, an integral part of the pilgrim's journey as God bestows his tenderest affections on those stricken of heart. Yet how frequently do church leaders interpret sorrow as a sign there is something wrong with their beleaguered brethren or with their spiritual walk? Nor is it any better in the world. How often have we heard the banal dialogue of Hollywood screenwriters where one character says to another, Don't cry. Even the psychiatric profession will diagnose a mental disorder or chemical imbalance 
and medicate it accordingly. Divine Depression Quotes I was laid low in the wilderness. 1 Corinthians 10.5 Through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. Jeremiah 2.6 St. John of the Cross, in that great work of mysticism, Dark Night of the Soul, describes an affliction that has visited many dear brethren in Christ. The soul feels itself to be perishing and melting away in the presence and sight of its miseries, in a cruel spiritual death, even as if it had been swallowed by a beast and felt itself being devoured in the darkness of its belly, suffering such anguish as was endured by Jonas in the belly of that beast of the sea, for in this sepulchre of dark death it must needs abide until the spiritual resurrection which it hopes for. This condition comes about, he argues, by the inflowing of God into the soul in order to renew it and thus to make it divine. The more directly we look at the sun, he says, the greater the darkness it causes in our vision, overcoming and overwhelming it. Similarly, we may experience a ray of divine light so fierce, so bright, so intense and unrelenting, that it feels like a ray of darkness absorbing the soul in deep night. During this time, he continues, the soul feels very keenly the shadow of death and the lamentations of death and the pains of hell, which consist in its feeling itself to be without God and chastised and cast out and unworthy of him. C.S. Lewis describes a similar phenomenon in his poem, A Pageant Played in Vain. To limbs and loins and heart, search with thy chemic beam, strike where the self I know not lives apart beneath the surface dream. Break, sun, my crusted earth, pierce, razor-edged within, where blind immortal metals have their birth, and crystals clear begin. Another way of looking at depression is as the birth pangs of an emergent new self. The pain of death is the pain of birth, writes M. Scott Peck in The Road Less Travelled. Since giving up or loss of the old self is an integral part of the process of mental and spiritual growth, depression is a normal and basically healthy phenomenon. He quotes T.S. Eliot's poem, Journey of the Magi. There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. In the language of Scripture, we may understand depression as a wilderness experience, like the wanderings of the Israelites after they underwent a kind of baptism by crossing the Red Sea. John Wesley attributes to this experience a loss of joy, peace, love, desire, delight, conviction, power, zeal, or any assurance of victory. All sense of kinship with God is gone, he asserts, 
and is replaced by doubt, fear, and torment. Depression may even be said to take us through the valley of the shadow of death. John Bunyan writes of it as a very solitary place, also marked by the complete absence of joy. For Christian, the hero of Pilgrim's Progress, it is worse than an all-out assault by the arch-fiend Apollyon. Why, the valley itself, which is as dark as pitch. We also saw there the hobgoblins, satyrs and dragons of the pit, and we heard in that valley a continual howling and yelling, like people in unspeakable misery, bound in affliction and irons. And over that valley hang the discouraging clouds of confusion. Death always spreads his wings over it. Thus, though we may ask, with the psalmist, Why are you downcast, O my soul? We do not and will not outlaw the condition of depression. Transformation through trial Quotes The trouble with steeling yourself against the harshness of reality is that the same steel that secures your life against being destroyed secures your life also against being opened up and transformed. Buchner, The Sacred Journey Where a man's wound is, that is where his genius will be. Robert Bly When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job 23.10 With a former last name of Reed and a history of being a Reed man by playing clarinet and saxophone, I am in love not only with God's promise not to break the bruised Reed, but with Oswald Chambers' interpretation of it. Satan points out a man and says, That man is a disgrace to you. He is a bruised reed. I wonder you build any hope on him whatever. He is a hindrance and an upset to you. Break him. But no, the Lord will bind him up and make him into a wonderful musical instrument. The old reeds were used to make wonderful musical instruments. And instead of crushing out the life that is bruised and wrong, God heals it and discourses sweet music through it. There you have it. Into the wound of depression pours the music of heaven. As William Gurnall wrote, Grace may be hard at work within you when you least feel its presence. Did faith ever triumph more than when our Saviour cried in utter despair, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Mark 15.34 Here faith was at its zenith, though it was midnight with respect to joy. Angelic Anger Quotes He looked round at them in anger. Mark 3.5 I can't tell you how many times I have read people who have lost their jobs in this recession in the newspaper saying, but I'm trying so hard to be positive. Well, maybe there's no reason to be positive. Maybe you should be angry, you know. I mean, there is a place for that in the world. Barbara Ehrenreich, speaking on Democracy Now! October the 13th, 2009. Touch me with noble anger. Shakespeare, 
King Lear. Anger is the emotion pastors most love to hate. Why are Christians condemned for it? When we have Jesus' own example of zeal for his father's house, the rage that coursed through him as he drove out the money changers or denounced the Pharisees as a brood of vipers. Sometimes a preacher will concede such a thing as righteous anger, but only serves thereby to conjure a legislated dividing line between righteous and unrighteous anger. As slaves to righteousness, our anger springs from an undivided heart. So efforts to repress anger poison us, allowing the sun to set on it, fostering in that darkness the root of bitterness, unspoken resentment and backbiting. David Siemens describes anger as a divinely planted emotion, part of God's image in the human personality. Never was Jesus more divine than at those moments when he was expressing white-hot anger. Many times, perfect love and anger go hand in hand. Indeed, the anger is the result of perfect love. Another example of such love is in the character of Abdiel, the great seraph angel conjured by John Milton in his masterpiece epic poem, Paradise Lost. There, in a flame of zeal severe, Abdiel is the only angel at Satan's command to contradict his leader's call for rebellion. Later, in the great war between angels loyal to God and the apostate ranks, it is Abdiel who delivers the first blow, striking Satan with such force that the enemy staggered back. Ten paces huge, the tenth on bended knee. So inspiring is Abdul's example that I not only officially changed my first name to his in 2013, but gave him recurring roles in my own epic poems, Obama's Dream and Elijah. In the latter, I have him describe his encounter with Satan thus, when battle came, the goad of false reproach had so incensed me that I did not see the thick array of troops in my approach to Satan, only his temerity. Into that blow I dealt upon his crest of which you spoke, I poured my love, yes, love, for love is stronger far than death, and blessed is he who wields it with all power above. Anger, then, can be an expression of love. Is it not our anger that alerts us to injustice, that gives us impulse to oppose the enemies of God and to overcome our fears in taking them on? And just as law has no jurisdiction over the emotion itself, nor shall it legislate its expression, whether through word or deed, nor attach labels of bad or inappropriate. To conclude this section, let us now for our entertainment imagine Jesus in a corporate meeting where he is challenged over his expressions of anger and sorrow. Jesus, there have been some serious complaints about your recent conduct in the temple of God. Your behaviour in dealing with those money changes was wholly unprofessional. You really need to get a grip on your anger, tone down the language, try to control it. Find some other way to get your point across. All that stuff about turning your father's house into a den of thieves? 
Come, come. Surely you can come up with something more appropriate, more diplomatic, something along the lines of the activities now being carried out in the Temple of God call into question the founding principles of the institution's mission. I enjoin you to consider the appearance and consequences of these questionable transactions now being conducted. Something along those lines. Be sure, of course, to submit your request through the proper channels and give them adequate time to respond. And do cheer up, old chap. You're getting the disciples down. Stop being so gloomy about going to your death. And can we come up with some other label than man of sorrows? Oh, no, 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 no. Far too gloomy. Not good for your brand. How are you going to get followers with that kind of depressing slogan? No, how about man of dauntless optimism or lord of bright futures? Hmm? And we're going to have to get rid of this passion of Christ business, aren't we? Sounds a bit wild, don't you think? How about the enthusiasm of Christ or the keep-your-chin-up-positive-attitude philosophy of Christ? Well, that does really sum things up, old chap, don't you think? You need to maintain a positive attitude. In light of your recent behaviour, we're going to extend your probationary period for a further six months. We'll be watching you closely during that time and look forward to seeing great improvement. Well, thank you for listening to Common Sense, Jesus. And now, uh, back to your carpentry. Freedom in Balance Quotes There is in him that union of head and heart, which is indispensable to an enlightenment of the heads and a winning of the hearts of others. William Lloyd Garrison, Preface to the Life of Frederick Douglass to note the curious hard logic of passion and the emotional-coloured life of the intellect. Oscar Wilde We think by feeling. What is there to know? Theodore Rutger, The Waking Man is both a passionate and a reasoning creature, a blend of psalms and proverbs, if you will. Both the passionate and the intellectual sides of man's nature have a place in God's scheme. Writes Potter Woodbury in his analysis of W. H. Auden's nativity play for the time being. The shepherds, he suggests, embody such qualities as passion, sensuality and spontaneity, while the wise men represent intellect and analysis. Both are saved by love from isolating either side of the self and calling it evil. Khalil Gibran, in his masterpiece, The Prophet, uses the image of a sailing ship to describe the soul empowered by passion and ruddered by reason. Your soul is oftentimes a battlefield, upon which your reason and your judgment wage war against your passion and your appetite. Would that I could be the peacemaker in your soul, that I might turn the discord and the rivalry of your elements into oneness and melody. But how shall I, unless you yourselves be also the peacemakers, nay, the lovers of all your elements? Your reason and your passion are the rudder and the sails of your seafaring soul. What God has joined together then, our emotions and our reason, let no man put asunder. 
Scripture sources both in the heart. Solomon's wisdom, for instance, is described as largeness of heart and is received through his heart and the utterance from the heart gives understanding. As Oswald Chambers sees it, the head is the outward expression of the heart, as a tree is the outward expression of the root. The Bible makes the heart the center of thinking, and the brain merely the machinery the heart uses to express itself. You've been listening to my audiobook recording of The Gourmet Gospel. You can find the links to get your copy by going to my website, poetprophet.com, where prophet spelt P-R-O-P-H-E-T. Until next week, this has been Abdiel Leroy. Thank you.